0: Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode 8. The murder of Junko Furuta. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about the torture and murder of Junko Furuta. I recommend listening to episodes 6 and 7, the Suzanne Capra case first, because although the cases are not related in any way, they are very similar. I wanted to say before I got started with this episode that the discussion of this death is not intended to cause any disrespect to the memory of the victim or her family and loved ones. I do not glorify the evil deeds of the murderers, nor do I condone any of the acts described herein. There are just no words to describe what the family has gone through. I'm your host, Ash, and if you're listening to this in the United States, this episode comes out on Thanksgiving Day. So I wanted to go ahead and wish you a happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. I know things may look a little different this year, but I still hope you are managing to have a great day. I would also like to issue a trigger warning for this episode. It is extremely graphic and violent in content. It includes descriptions of rape, sodomy, torture, and violence of a very extreme nature. Please consider carefully whether or not you want to hear this. If you are sensitive to violent or extreme content in general, this may be an episode that you want to skip. I also wanted to apologize in case I mispronounced any of these names. So let's go ahead and get started with a little background about Junko Furuta. Junko was a 17-year-old high school student who loved her books, her family, and also her part-time job. She was a good student, and many would describe her as also a good person. She didn't drink, smoke, or go out and party. Instead, she focused on achieving academic success and trying to make a good life for herself. One day on her way home from school on November 25, 1988, she caught the eye of Hiroshi Miyano. This all would take place around Tokyo, Japan. Miyano was smitten with her, and recently asked her out on a date. It was well known that he had ties to the Yakuza, and was involved in violent crime, despite his young age. Now, if you're not familiar with the Yakuza, it's the organized crime of Japan. And there's a lot of YouTube videos that go into a lot of detail on it. It's pretty interesting stuff. Now I'm not sure why he thought someone like Junko would just willingly become his romantic partner. They were complete opposites, but still he had his sights on her. Miano and his gang of friends had reputations almost as large as the rap sheets of prior violent offenses. They would frequently terrorize the people in the town of Masata, robbing people going about their daily chores, and even abducting girls right off the streets to gang rape them. Yeah. So, of course, Junko turned down his offer of a date because, well, she was terrified of him. She wasn't that type of girl, the type of girl that would be interested in someone like that. She didn't want anything to do with crime, violent or otherwise. She really didn't date at all, She was really focused on her academic career and also caring for her parents. Everyone described her as a good girl, sweet, obedient, and even shy. Unfortunately, Miano remembered the rejection and would pay her back for disrespecting him. He went as far as to hatch a plan. He and a fellow gang member saw Junko bicycling home after her part-time job. Miano would hide in the bushes while his friend positioned himself at the curb where Junko would pass by him. His friend kicked Junko as she cycled past and knocked her off her bike and then he ran away. This is where Miano pretended to come to her rescue. He also offered to walk her home to ensure that she arrived safely. When they were away from the main part of town where help was readily available, he forcefully abducted Junko and dragged her into an abandoned warehouse. No one would be able to hear her screams. He restrained her and raped her. Then he took her to a hotel room and raped her twice more. Miano then called up his friends and invited him to, quote, come round to see who he had and what he had done, end quote. He was bragging. He was proud of himself. One of his friends suggested that they keep Junko. That way they could use her any way they wanted, at any time. Sort of like a living toy. They told Junko that they knew where she lived, and if she escaped, her family would all be murdered by the Yakuza. Junko believed them. She had witnessed their casual violence on the streets of her town, everyone had. Who was going to stop them? From the hotel, the gang took her to Miato's home, owned by his parents. This is the friend from earlier. They made her pose as his girlfriend whenever his parents were around. However, they soon discovered the truth of the situation, but they claimed they were too afraid to intervene. Perhaps this was true, perhaps not. After all, they did raise a child capable of the events you are about to hear, so who really knows. But wow, that's amazing that they didn't even do anything. When they arrived at the Miyato home, the gang rapes began immediately. They would continue as a daily staple of Junko's life from here on out they invited more of their friends around to join in. It's believed that Junko was raped over 400 times during her 44 days of captivity. On the second day of her disappearance, Junko's parents reported her missing. When Miyano heard of the intimate police involvement, he forced Junko to phone her parents and to tell them to call off the police search. She was forced to say that she had run away voluntarily and was staying with friends. And with that call, she had lost hope of authorities coming to her rescue. If she did not comply, the gang threatened to massacre her entire family. So she gave up her life to ensure their safety. The torment inflicted upon Junko during her first week in captivity was inconceivable. In addition to the hundreds of gang rapes, she was abused both mentally and physically in the most horrific ways. They would hang Junko from the ceiling, from her wrist, and use her body as a punching bag, beating her with fists, bats, pipes, and belts. She was starved, and when she begged for food, she was forced to eat live cockroaches and her own feces. The more Junko screamed and suffered, the more the boys were amused, mocking her, and they all tried to outdo one another in their cruelty. Junko's face and genitals were burned with cigarettes. A burning hot light bulb was forced into her vagina, searing the sensitive flesh from the inside. Despite all this torture, Junko did attempt to escape. On day 11, she tried to escape. She almost made it to the door to her freedom when she was spotted by a member of the gang and dragged back inside before she could raise the alarm. After this, the torture intensified as a punishment. Other boys from the neighborhood were invited to take part in her torture, They poured lighter fluid on her legs and feet and set her on fire. Her lower body was charred and oozing masses of blood and exposed nerve endings. She could no longer run away. They also dropped heavy concrete blocks onto her stomach from a height, trying to make her expel her own organs. During her eventual autopsy, the medical examiner found her internal organs ruptured, bruised, and torn. After that, she could no longer drink water without vomiting. Her body was beginning the process of shutting down. But she had a spirit and the will to live, and it was very strong in her. They forced Junko onto a concrete floor and took turns jumping on her face and head breaking the bones around her eye, brow, and her nose. Her nose filled with blood to where she could only breathe through the broken teeth where her mouth was. Amazingly, somehow, word reached the police that Junko was being held captive at the house. This was most likely due to one of the boys bragging that they had seen Junko and participated in the tormenting of her. Several officers did pay a visit to the home, but his parents claimed she was not inside, and they invited the officers to take a look around themselves. The police officers believed that no one who really did have an adopted girl inside would allow a police search of the premises. So they just thanked the couple and took off without searching the house. So, wow, they were there, but they decided not to search, even though they had permission. And with that left Junko's last hope of survival. The torture continued on and on for 44 days and nights. It was now December, and winters in Japan are bitterly cold. Junko was made to sleep naked outside on a second-story concrete balcony with no blanket and no protection from the elements. It was cold enough to make sleep impossible due to her violent shivering, but it was not cold enough to take her life. By the 30th day, her brain had severely shrunken in size within her skull. This caused Junko to suffer from violent seizures, but the gang thought she was faking it. So they punished her for them. They pulverized the bones in her fingers and hands with hammers and concrete blocks. Fireworks were shoved into her and they exploded. She was completely broken in body and spirit. That it took her over an hour to drag herself down to the stairs to use the bathroom when it was allowed. She soon lost control over her bladder, and when she involuntarily urinated on herself, it brought on further beatings. She was punished for that. By day 40, she was unable to move where she laid curled on the floor. She begged her captors to kill her to put an end to her suffering. On the 44th day, her last day, they forced Junko to play them in a game of Mahjong. When she won the game, it enraged them further, and they beat her with iron bars and sealed her eyes shut with scalding candle wax. Her body was one giant mess of raw and bloody flesh. Not a single inch was sparred from abuse. Her wounds had become infected and were dripping with pus and blood. The gang had to cover their hands with plastic before touching her, as there was no part of her that wasn't afflicted. They beat the soles of her feet with bamboo sticks. She began convulsing, so they doused her head with lighter fluid and set her on fire. She tried to bat at the flames, but soon she fell unconscious. After six weeks, 44 days of constant torture, Junko succumbed to death but even death would not stop her torture. The gang was so accustomed to her passing out for long periods, they continued beating her, failing to realize that she was dead for another day and night. You may have heard this case be referred to as the concrete-encased high school girl murder. This was because they disposed her body by shoving her into a 55-gallon steel drum and filled it with wet concrete to conceal her. They then took it to the Koto ward of Tokyo and dumped it there like trash. The Japanese press would refer to the case as the concrete-encased high school girl murder. Several weeks later, while being interrogated by police about the gang rape of another local girl, one of the gang members broke down and confessed to Junko's murder as well. He directed the police to where her remains could be located. Similar to the Suzanne Capra case, Junko's face was so battered and broken that her own parents couldn't recognize her and was ultimately identified by her fingerprint. That's singular fingerprint because only a small patch of skin was unmarred enough to hold a partial print. The investigation into Junko's cruel demise uncovered more than a hundred individuals who knew of Junko's imprisonment, and many of them took part in her torture and rapes. Despite this, only four people were arrested and charged in her death. The two instigators of the crime, Hiroshi Miyano and Noborahu Minuto, as we talked about earlier, along with two fellow gang members, Yasushi Watanabe and Joe Ogura. The names of the four boys were initially withheld from the public, but outraged journalists would eventually uncover and leak their names. The boys were juveniles at the time, so under Japanese law, they were given considerably lighter sentences. In 1990, Hiroshi Miyano, as the ringleader, was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. The other three were only sentenced to five, between five and nine years. Right now, all four are currently out of jail, and they are free to live their lives. A lot of people actually believe that the Yakuza connections played a role in their minimal sentences. Now, this is really sad. Junko's mother would hear about the full extent of her daughter's abuse. She would suffer a mental breakdown, which was caused by the guilt of her knowing she called off the police investigation after she was contacted by Junko. She had been committed to a mental hospital for psychiatric treatment. She would live a lifetime of unimaginable anguish and mental torment, even though It was not her fault. She still felt that she was the one to blame. I mentioned in Suzanne Capper's murder that it did not receive a lot of media attention at the time because there was another case going on that involved the death of a younger child. This was not the case in Junko's death. Her death received wide media attention in Japan due to the sheer brutality of her torture and the length of time she was made to suffer, 44 days, and also the young age of her murderers. Everyone was shocked that these younger children really could commit these murders. Junko was only 17 years old at the time of her murder, and the boys were around the same age that killed her. Nobarua Minuto, who was sentenced to five to nine years in prison, was released. He was only 16 at the time. After he was released, he moved in with his mother, and he was arrested again in 2018, and this was for the attempted murder of a 32-year-old man who he nearly killed and beat with a metal rod, and also slashed his throat with a knife. Well, It was also said that the boys would talk about the crime they committed and kind of brag about it. They showed no remorse whatsoever. This crime really causes most people to sit back and question how someone could inflict such cruelty upon another human being. And also, how they can turn a deaf ear and blind eye to the suffering and pain of a helpless person in such distress. That is the heart of sadism, and perhaps you need to be afflicted with sadism for it to make sense. We must question how this brutal treatment is attractive to some, that they find entertainment and even joy from such brutality. It is incomprehensible to the rest of us, that's for sure. That was such an extreme episode, and it really has me questioning how anyone could do this to another human being, or how anyone could watch while this happened to another human being. It's just incomprehensible to me, and very sad at the same time. Thank you so much for listening to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. If you could, please take a minute to leave a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts and also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them from. This really helps others to find the show and it keeps us going. Also, if you could follow me on Instagram at truecrimeworks. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes, I would always love to hear them. You can either send me a message on Instagram or you can email me truecrimeworks at gmail.com. Dot com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I look forward to talking to you next week.